and welcome to the North Decatur Presbyterian Church Sermon Series. We're a PCUSA congregation in Decatur, Georgia. If you'd like to find out more about us, go to ndpc.org or just come by and visit. Here's this week's sermon. From Luke's Gospel, it is the afternoon on the day of resurrection. Now on that same day, two disciples were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing, Jesus himself came near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what are you discussing with each other while you walk along? They stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, whose name was Cleopas, answered him, are you the only stranger in Jerusalem who does not know the things that have taken place there in these days? Jesus asked them, what things? They replied, the things about Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and leaders handed him over to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. And besides all this, it's now the third day since these things took place. Moreover, some women of our group astounded us. They were at the tomb early this morning, and when they did not find his body there, they came back and told us that they had indeed seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said. But they did not see him. Then Jesus said to them, How foolish you are. How slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have declared. Was it not necessary that the Messiah should suffer these things and then enter into his glory? Then, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them the things about himself in all the scriptures. As they came near the village to which they were going, Jesus walked ahead as if he were going on. But the disciples urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us. It's almost evening, and the day is now nearly over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And then their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. 
And they said to each other, Were not our hearts burning within us while he was talking to us on the road when he was opening the scriptures to us? So that same hour they got up and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and their companions gathered together. They were saying, The Lord has risen indeed. He has appeared to Simon. And then the disciples told what had happened on the road and how he had been made known to them in the breaking of the bread. That is the word of God for us, the people of God. We say together, thanks be to God. Beloveds, we have taken time this Easter season to talk through the seven marks of a vital congregation. I'm sure by now you have memorized them. So far, we have touched, of course, on lifelong discipleship, Intentional, authentic evangelism, outward incarnational focus, empowering servant leadership. That was last Sunday. Today's focus is on spirit-inspired worship. Can I get an amen? Amen. Can I get an hallelujah? Hallelujah. Can I get a praise Jesus? Jesus. (laughs) That's that's mediocre. (laughs) Mediocre. Mediocre at best. Our staff was laughing the other day at these seven vital marks, how theologically sound they are, and yet every one of them is like a super mouthful to try to spit out, right? There's no good theological idea that Presbyterians haven't tried to kill with too many words. Amen? Hallelujah. (laughs) I love words. I love icing, too, right? But you've had one of those grocery store cakes where the lady with the icing went crazy with the flowers and the green things, right? There is such a thing as too much icing, and there is such a thing as too many words in worship. When you begin thinking about what the Spirit-filled worship might look like, what it might sound like, what it might feel like, and when you start thinking about what it is that we do here on Sunday and why we do it this way and not some other way, one of the first things that you realize is that most of us really don't think all that much about it. When we do show up here, for many of us, what happens is habitual. We know more or less what to expect. We don't ask why things are this way. It's like politics or hot dog making. Maybe what goes into making worship is something we're better off not knowing. Of course we're aware that in this big, beautiful world of ours, there are so many ways, so many different ways that people worship. There are so many choices that we have, so many possibilities for worship. Worship diversity is a great thing. We just don't always want it in our church. We kind of like what we've got, right? That's why we come here on Sunday. We Presbyterians have wordy liturgies that tend towards stiffness. Evangelical churches are like a Taylor Swift concert with a bloody Jesus thrown in. Episcopalian siblings have worship with fancy clothes and a fetish for British things. Quakers, they sit there in silence. Although I've been to plenty of Quaker meetings where somebody got up to speak because they felt the Holy Spirit moving, and every time they were done, you were pretty sure that it wasn't the Holy Spirit moving. (laughs) Every worship service is quirky. Every worship style is weird. We all just like our own brand of weird. 
No matter what you do in worship, no matter how you worship, one of the rules, one of the hard and fast rules of worship is that space always wins. Our space, the space that we worship in, matters as much or more as anything that happens in it. I don't know how many of you have gotten a chance to be in one of the great cathedrals in your life. Raise your hand. You've been in one of those massive stone spaces. Powerful experience. But it's just as powerful to sit in, a, in an American rural church, right? A 19th century simple white church with clear windows. One of my favorite worship spaces that I've ever been in is, beloved to some of you, it's the Church of the New Covenant. Round, round worship space. So when you look up, you see other faces. It's a different experience depending on the kind of space that you occupy, a different experience of God. And since I'm on the subject, I'll say it again, I love this worship space but Beth and I still want y'all to take out the pews and replace them with chairs so that every once in a while we can turn them and face each other. Or maybe you really like the mole on the back of that guy's neck in front of you, huh? We'll keep talking. With so much diversity in the way that human beings worship, the kinds of words we use, the kinds of music that we share, the art, the architecture. Is there anything at all that we can say about what makes worship good? Well, all I can tell you is what we try to do here every Sunday. Our hope is that every time we gather here, you will have a chance to meet the living God. So how on earth do we do that? Well, for one, your staff spends a heck of a lot of time planning worship. This doesn't all happen by accident, you know. The themes and the sermons and the images and the music we use are drawn from planning sessions. We think about all the conversations that we have with you all. We think about what's on your mind. We have listened to you and heard your loves and your passions and your concerns. We know what worries you. We talk about what's going on in the world that requires a word from God. We have to talk in this place about mass shootings and reproductive rights and gas prices and also high school graduations and health crises and new babies. For you to have a chance to encounter the living God, worship has to be fresh. It has to be handmade, made from scratch. These worship services are not preservative-filled, wrapped in cellophane for an extended shelf life. The church is not a museum. Worship is not a relic. It's a happening. One of our congregation's first signs out there on the corner said, a contemporary church following a contemporary Christ into a contemporary world. Again, Presbyterians are a little too wordy. But, but you get the point, right? If God is God, then God is found in the world right now. Our worship should look and feel and sound like the world as it is right now. Now that said, worship is not just about looking around or looking at our own navels and hoping to find inspiration or God lurking there. Although maybe God is lurking in your navel. I'm, who's to say? We rely every week on our collective engagement with the scripture. 
The words of these old stories have legs. These characters and the stories, they speak into our lives. The living God appears through the pages of this book, and that happens through the alchemy of this process called interpretation. You've heard me say this a thousand times, I will say it a thousand more, but we human beings, we are stories. You and I are made up of stories every bit as much as we are made of atoms. There's nothing for us that is more nourishing or healthier, nothing more essential for our lives as human beings than to think about ourselves as part of a great, large, expansive story. Amen? Our great story begins in the beginning, at the very dawn of creation, and it ends who knows where and who knows when. But it is our story, it's your story. Every week when we open the pages of this book, it should show you your roots in the ancient past. It should point you toward your branches that extend into the future. Interpretation, when we do it right, alters our sense of time. It kindles our imaginations. It lets you connect with what what was and what is and what is yet to be. Y'all just thought we were reading some scripture, didn't you? It does all those things. I can show you exactly what this means by looking at this Emmaus text from today. It is a brilliant piece of writing. These two disciples, what are their names? One is named... Cleopas, the other is named, not named. Why? Because the writer wants to know this is you, right? You're in this story. When you read this story, you are walking along with Cleopas. You're wandering away from Jerusalem. You're trying to make sense of why the beloved child of God was hung on a cross. What happens then, right? This mysterious stranger comes walking alongside of you, and you start a dialogue with this stranger. It's the power of conversation to nourish our faith. And this stranger talks to the disciples, asks provocative questions, right? He wants to know what they think, what they see. You know that God asks you questions too sometimes, right? So then the stranger says to them, remember, Remember, use your memory. Remember your own experience. Remember your time with Jesus. Remember your story, your ancient story, and what it says about your God. Conversation, storytelling, memory, all of these are doors that open unto the living God. So what happens next? The disciples invite the stranger to come in and eat with them. And that's where the disciples really are no longer telling the story through an embodied practice of hospitality. They now are the story. Their eyes are opened in the breaking of the bread and they see the risen Christ. Why does Luke say they see the risen Christ in the breaking of the bread? Because Luke's community is breaking bread when they worship every single week. He wants them to know that the story is not something that happened a long time ago. 
Emmaus is something that happens again and again and again. Our eyes are opened to the love of God every time we remember our story, every time we eat with a stranger, every time we break the bread, the living God appears. You gotta love the way Luke ends the story too, right? Luke ends this encounter with the living God, this experience of worship, and Luke says Christ just disappears. Boom. Gone. Why? Because all of our encounters with the living God are ephemeral. You can't hold on to them or put them in a bottle or slip them in your pocket. They happen. They're real, they change us, and then they're gone. We human beings do a lot of weird things. Amen? Yeah. <laughs> Worship may be the weirdest. It's completely impractical. It won't get you buff does not make you wealthy. It sure as heck is not convenient. But it is necessary. It's necessary because we belong to a great story. We are the great story. The living God, the God in whom we live and move and have our very being. The God to whom you and I belong in life and death. The God who holds the past and the future. The God whose love is the strongest force in all of creation. The God whose love is in you. This God can be beheld, if only for a moment, when we worship. When that happens, when worship is good, when it is spirit-filled, our eyes are open, our spirits are enlarged, and our lives are blessed. Maybe you never thought this much about worship. Maybe you didn't want to know what goes into the hot dog. But I think a bit of awareness when we come into this space never hurts. The great writer Annie Dillard once said this wonderful thing about worship. She said, on the whole, I do not find Christians sufficiently sensible of conditions. Does anyone have the foggiest idea what sort of power we so blithely invoke? Or as I suspect, does no one believe a word of it? The churches are children playing on the floor with their chemistry sets, mixing up a batch of TNT to kill a Sunday morning. She says, it is madness to wear straw hats to church. We should all be wearing crash helmets. Ushers should issue life preservers and signal flares. They should lash us to our pews, for the sleeping God may wake someday and take offense at what we do, or the waking God may draw us out to where we can never return. Oh, may it be so. May it be so. Every Sunday, let the church say amen.